Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning. Yes, this is Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And it's blowing a, a reckless wind out there this morning. If you're not, if you're listening to us live, if uh, if not, it's just a message from the past on the yes. podcast. I quite like listening to it in bed, but once you get out of bed, it's not that fun. <laughs> I know. Isn't the wind amazing? Because I live down by the sea and I got out and I think, oh, this is scary. It's just scary. But anyway, uh, the day is a, the windy day is afoot. Uh, we've got lots of things to uh, give you today. Uh, I went off to the Economic and Social Outlook Conference. Yes, it's being reported all over the media. Mm. Aren't you aren't you sad you didn't go? I am sad because last year I got this free bag that was actually really well made. Yeah, well, it's really <laughs> funny because I got a bag that's really well made. But you see, this conference was put together by the Melbourne Institute, which is uh, part of Melbourne University, and also the Australian. So the bag has got this big uh, Australian written right across it. So I, I've been coming up with plans for uh, getting some yeah, white out to white it out. Because last year it... If you read it, it's, you know, a little bit insidious and sounds like a euphemism for something, but at least it doesn't catch your eye. <laughs> That's exactly right. But anyway, it was about new directions uh, in an uncertain world. And the reason for why it's a fairly interesting and important, uh, well, interesting, uh, uh, important conference is that it brings together a whole lot of politicians, uh, academics and uh, public servants effectively in a expensive hotel and they for two days they talk about a whole range of stuff and unlike the last time I went to this thing where it was sort of like a, I went away feeling like it was a Liberal Party fest this time there was definitely a change in the tenor of it uh, and uh, the reason why we're going to do a report is because the whole notion of inequality finally reached the table of our political masters as they lead on, like Macduff, to the next federal election. And so I thought I'd give you a few tidbits and a bit of context to some of the things that have been buzzing around the um, mainstream media. That's one of the things we're going to follow up. We've got a couple of other things on the plate and we'll hopefully end off with a speech, an, an incredibly impassioned speech from last night's Justice for Elijah mm. uh, rally in Melbourne on the steps of Parliament, went all the way down to Flinders Street. You were there at Flinders Street. 
Yeah, we were sort of at tail ends of the demonstration. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So we can tell you a little bit about that as well. And in the middle of it, hopefully, we're going to have This Is The Week That Was and uh, a little report about constructivism. It's all happening at Heidi and hopefully someone's going to give us some uh, tidbits about uh, that. The Australian Unemployed Workers' Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30, featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall Carlton, from 2 to 5pm. For tickets, phone 96505699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. That's tomorrow. Ah. That's why I put it on. Yeah, I'm going to go. I think it uh, sounds great. Uh, great uh, cause, but also great people. Um, great people. Anyway, uh, like I said, uh, the uh, Economic and Social Outlook Conference, I know you all wish you were there. Anyway, I went there and I did lots and lots of recording. There are actually quite a lot of things that might be of interest to people later on. But this is a little look at uh, the political side of what was going on there. And as I said, it was uh, like a, a, a long, uh, the beginning, the, uh, the step-off point for uh, going on to the next federal election. And the issue of inequality as the core problem of the country was not the message that the Liberal parties wanted to get across, but it was the elephant in the room in mm. all of the sessions. But there was this fascinating thing that happened, that um, Turnbull was the one who spoke at lunch, right? And uh, the uh, because it was auspiced by the Australian, they uh, I think that was the reason, all of us media people weren't allowed to go and have lunch. We had to troop in at a particular time before, uh, so that we could listen to Turnbull speak, uh, which annoyed everybody. So you weren't everybody. allowed to have lunch, was that you weren't allowed to eat or they didn't allow you in to listen to Turnbull or uh, w- when he did his glad bagging walking through because that's what they do they have the, everyone sitting down then he walks through and ta- you know shakes hands and has little chit chats with all the people and it's all very you know friendly friendly and then uh, at a certain point he stands up and does his speech and then there were questions and answers which apparently were Dorothy Dix's. And uh, the point is uh, that uh, I did hear the speech, did record it, but the bit that was fascinating to me was not only was it a sort of a dog's breakfast of a speech all over the place as far as I could make out, um, the last bit the last bit, and I want to play it to you uh, so that you get an idea of why it was so weird. We are taking every step we can to ensure that energy in Australia is affordable and reliable. There has been a huge amount, a huge amount of mistakes made in the past. Uh, Many of them have been the result of politics. Many of them, like the decision about gas exports, I think have been the result of, of negligence or an absence of mind. But step by step, we are fixing these issues. 
and our approach is guided by engineering and economics, not ideology and politics, with an unrelenting focus on the needs of consumers and a system that will deliver affordable and reliable energy. Now, the pace and scale of the change that's transforming the world does create uncertainty, as we know. It also improves our lives. Managing uncertainty is and always has been part of life. Households and businesses grapple with it daily. When you buy a new home, invest in new, in new equipment, enter a new market. Now, I don't view uncertainty with the same pessimism that some others do. But the topic of this conference reminds us that economic disruption and change requires a response. Doing things as they've always been done is not the answer. As I've said earlier in this week, in the context of our changes to our security apparatus, set and forget is never an option. My approach in every single area of policy is to every day seek to optimise and improve what we do. Don't wait for failure or uh, a crisis. Make sure that you are constantly improving what you're doing. That way you stay ahead of the challenges, you stay ahead of the threats, and you ensure that we are best poised to achieve our goals and realise our opportunities. So at the heart of our efforts is the principle deep in our DNA that the government's role is to enable Australians to do their best, to realise their dreams, to broaden their horizons as they see fit, not, as our opponents and the Labor Party would have it, as government decrees. There is the fundamental difference. We are committed to freedom. We respect individuals as individuals, their freedom to determine their own lives and everything we do is designed to enable them to do that and do that more successfully. We do not believe that government knows best. So I believe that in a world of change unprecedented in its pace and scale, because of our commitment to freedom, because of our determination to be innovative, to be optimistic, to be confident, because of that Australian spirit, no nation is better able to meet the challenges and seize the opportunities of our age than our own Australia. Thank you very much. Yes, that was tepid ca uh, clapping. <laughs> it sounds like he's trying to challenge, uh, like channel Bush the Younger. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I swear I asked a whole lot of people after and on the next day, what was he talking about when he was talking about we believe in Australian dreams and freedom? And what has that got to do with energy? Or anything? <laughs> yeah, but he says that it's a political problem. And then he says we're going to use engineering and economics. Yeah, yeah, and innovation and optimism. Seems to contradict himself constantly. Yeah, yeah, great adjectives. <laughs> anyway... That was fascinating, and uh, at a certain point, in, in terms of its uh, weird American underlying message, and remembering this is like the uh, kickoff to the next federal election, and what he said there is going to be repeated and repeated and repeated. Mark my words. Now, I go off to the um, Environment and Energy Minister, Josh Frydenberg, who makes it completely clear that 
when he stands up, he doesn't call himself the Minister for Environment and Energy. What he does is he stands up and calls himself the Minister for Energy and the Environment, right? And then he, he quite explicitly says, no hiding, he explicitly says that for the Liberals, the environment is about the price of electricity, right? That's what he says, and that they're going to spend all their time and they think this is right, to pressure the state governments to relinquish the uh, control of uh, resources so that we can develop, 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 and that is code for frack, frack, frack. And he said it explicitly. I think we should try and guess what the next three-word slogan is. Yeah. By the end of the show. Exactly. I think (laughs) so too. And, you know, it's fantastic because, you know, the ACCC just put out a report they put it out on uh, Tuesday, I think it was, and uh, Thursday. Uh, the, they put out a – you could not – it was completely clear. What they said was that the reason for why electricity is so expensive, and this is not news, but they've said it clearly, one, privatisation, two, deregulation, deregulation, and three, over uh, – capitalisation of poles and wires, right? Now, Mm. they've said it quite clearly. So does that mean that the companies have put in too much money into the well, they're grid? Saying all, that they're the... saying that all the big, uh, you know, how you've got to pay all this money for connection fee and ongoing is all because it's for the maintenance of the wires and, you know. It's so they're the trying, to get back, the trying to get back their and capital it, investment. Is yeah, that... And they've just huge amounts of money going in by in the bills and they're saying that it's going towards maintenance of the system, but it's an overcapitalization. It's more than they actually need. I think mm. that's what the code is. It's just a big fat word for the same thing. It's called thievery. Um, but anyway, by the by, and uh, this was completely obvious to everybody, but the thing that was fascinating was that by the by 9 o'clock news that night, Channel 7 News had changed the headline to the reason for why it, uh, electricity was so expensive was, was because there was no competition in the market. I was thinking, oh, God, I've got to tell people this. This is hysterical. Anyway, the scam goes on. So the next thing is, we've heard Turnbull and his dog's breakfast kind of characterisation of the Liberals' role in saving Australia from itself. And then, of course, where did equality, inequality, was brought onto the table the next day when Bill Shorten did his speech. Now, we're going to play more of Bill Shorten, and the reason for why I'm going to pay... Uh, it was actually a 20-minute speech, but and it was a whole... And he's obviously been uh, learning how to act in and speak in a more reasonable fashion. Because like a normal person, <laughs> almost. Yeah, well, he's been practising, and it is, as I said, leading up to the next election. And so he's giving his floor plan and his understanding of what their election process is going to be about. So they just squarely talked about inequality. Now, uh, the reason why we're going to play more of Bill Shorten is because this is the fabulous thing about being part of the media people at an event like this. It was made clear to me by the AAP person that the ABC had played Turnbull's speech live, the whole piece, uh, 25 minutes worth of it live the day before. Now, when Bill Shorten does his speech, 
the ABC played five minutes of it live and then went to repeat news. So I thought we'd just um, perhaps even up the score a little bit. So let's see where he is. Here's Shorten. My opponent is not an extremist. Neither am I. The media here aren't extremists either. But the people do have a right to be concerned. And it's a concern I submit today that springs from the fact that the economy is not working as it should in the interests of working Australians. Australians are asking themselves, their family, their friends, their elected representatives about the country's future and where people fit in in our nation's future. They're asking about what sort of deal will we pass on to the next generation. And across our nation, hope, faith in that generational contract is retreating because inequality is on the march. The workers' share of income is at its lowest level in half a century. Too many people are working harder for less. Less money in their pay packet, less security in their job. And for over one million underemployed Australians, they're working less hours than they would like to. More and more Australians are part-time or casualised, denied a proper income that they can live upon. They're able to be dismissed or put off or have their contract varied at any time. The Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry says that the current regulatory environment is hostile to enterprise bargaining. The union movement knows that the current system is letting workers down. People are underpaid, underrepresented, and in many cases too frightened to complain. In the regions and the suburbs, we're seeing the impact of a new technological revolution where thousands of jobs can be replaced by a handful. Entire industries, like car manufacturing, just displaced. And when Australians are told that there's a shortage of employment in professions, in teaching or nursing or engineering, we tell our young ones to spend years training, but then they take even longer to find full-time work, if they in fact do. More and more of us cannot afford to live in proximity to where we work. We're left relying upon transport systems designed in the 1880s and brought up to the standards of the 1950s or 1960s. And there are very many of our fellow Australians who live from one fortnightly pay to the next. And for them, the hard decisions never stop. And then these people 
our fellow citizens, they see the contrast. The most profitable banks in the world ripping people off. An energy-rich nation with rapidly escalating energy prices and housing prices locking out a generation who cannot rely upon rich parents. In this set of circumstances, I want to say to the politicians and the media commentators who bemoan in terms of Old Testament prophets about the rise of populism, they're just shooting the messenger. And it's no good, this nostalgic pining for the reforms of the 1980s and 1990s if we do not recognise the defining qualities that made those reforms possible. A voice for working people and the decisions which affect them. Inclusion in the economy, a fair share. Fair pay, a social wage, a strong, world-class, world-leading safety net. Nostalgia does not prepare our nation for the decades ahead. We need a new focus on the biggest threat to our health as an economy and our cohesion as a society, inequality. Inequality in wages and tax, in job security and bargaining, in education and health care. Inequality for women in pay, in leadership, in superannuation. Inequality for our first Australians on nearly every measure that we can think of. And inequality for home buyers, first home buyers and renters alike. Every serious economic authority, from the International Monetary Fund to the chair of the US Federal Reserve is now warning that inequality threatens prosperity. The governor of our own reserve bank has spoken so powerfully about the crisis of low pay. Inequality is an economic problem. It is not just an abstract concept. Inequality is why young people, young Australians are more uncertain than they've been for generations. But it isn't just about young people. Inequality is Australians going for years without a pay rise, but paying more taxes than their boss. Inequality is when women, due to the gender pay gap, effectively work for the first two months of every year for free compared to their male colleagues. Inequality is that when families are demoralised because they can barely afford to rent, let alone buy. Inequality is workers in their 50s, in their 60s, displaced, struggling to find work again, job interview after job interview, unsuccessful. Inequality is LGBTI Australians who are just waiting for a parliament to be good enough 
to be strong enough just to simply be fair. And it isn't just the gap between the very well-off and everyone else. It's the gap between those who live in the resource-rich, infrastructure-strong inner cities of our inner suburbs of our big cities and those who live in the outer suburbs and our regions. It's the digital divide between access to good NBN and slow second-rate internet, between well-funded schools and those without resources. It's the gap between our generation and the next. And unless we act on the sources of inequality, then those gaps become tears, the tears become fractures and the fractures become chasms. Permanent fault lines in our country. Inequality kills hope. It feeds that sense, that resentment, that the deck is stacked against ordinary people, that the fix is in, the deal is done. That it's not what you know, it is who you know. That whilst it has always been a factor in your life, the wealth of your parents, that it is now becoming the defining feature and source of your future. That your success in life is predetermined by your parents' income. Yeah, well, you can see you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. You can see, Kim, that that was quite a different uh, tone of speech than uh, Turnbull's. Yes, I think it's I mean, I think it's good if the Labor Party decides this is how they're going to try and win the election because it creates much more space for the left and for and for left-wing politics, even though we know that well, when they get in government, they don't actually mean it. Well, we'll see. But um, the, the next part of that speech is obviously about what they uh, think they should be doing. But, um, and, but also it's uh, pussyfooting around. It's like a, a waltz around the mainstream media's uh, and the uh, Liberal Party's uh, 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 lines. It's always promotional lines that uh, divert people from uh, the true core inequality within society. And Mm. uh, one of the things about this uh, conference, and it was quite different from the previous one, as I was saying, was that the academics actually were pulling out their skills and uh, to actually address the uh, bring out the facts and figures that uh, actually support what uh, Shorten was so saying. So they didn't spend any time talking about federalism at this. No, <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> they spent a lot of time talking about it. The last one. Well, that's what I mean. This was the real deal, anyway. So uh, the next piece uh, before uh, is is about how it's not just in uh, Bill Shorten's mind or in our mind that inequality is. You know, everybody's trying to. The power brokers are trying to, or as Julie Bishop says, democracies are great for uh, increasing the wealth of the top echelons. <laughs> she actually, Bishop said she that. actually said that at this conference. Anyway, I thought it was... In, as a good thing? Yeah, yeah, as a good thing. As a, no, we're not looking at the lower and the middle. We're just talking about the high. She actually said it. But anyway, maybe I'm, that's how I took it for what she said. But anyway, uh, Ro, uh, Professor Roger Wilkins, who is uh, from the Melbourne Institute, uh, he's the professor, prof, 
professorial, <laughs> how do you say that? Professorial research fellow and deputy director of the Melbourne Institute Applied Economic and Social Research from Melbourne University. And he was actually speaking about the the facts and figures. This opening piece, uh, it opens with Professor Lisa Cameron, who's outlining the focus of the session. So uh, if you want to be armed with some facts and figures about how inequality really is the key issue, then for Australia... So if we look around the world... We're witnessing many voters expressing dissatisfaction with major parties and directing their votes towards the margins of the political spectrum. We see this in the US, of course, with the Trump presidency. We've seen it in the UK with Brexit, in um, Europe, um, not necessarily with poll success, but with um, the emergence of right-wing parties, and in Australia with the re-emergence of One Nation. Um, So the causes of this phenomenon are not crystal clear, but many view them as being associated with marginalisation of various segments of society who aren't benefiting from economic growth and the consequent increases in income inequality. And one response to this has been to advocate for social protection policies that guarantee everyone a basic income. Uh, And so to speak on these issues today, we have three eminent speakers. I'm just going to introduce them as they, in turn, as they speak. So we're starting with uh, Roger Wilkins, who's a professor and deputy director of the Melbourne Institute um, and deputy director of the Hilda Survey, and who's been working on inequality in Australia and internationally for somewhere close, or maybe even more than 20 years. So thank you, Roger. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, so I think it's um, fair to say that um, inequality has been getting a lot more attention in recent years. Um, and, uh, and I guess if you, uh, I, you could also say that there's probably been a, uh, a, a widespread view that, uh, that inequality is rising, has been rising in Australia in recent years. And uh, I, I'm feeling quite prescient because apparently... Uh, Bill Shorten's actually repeated this again today, uh, this, this, this line or some variation on it, that uh, the inequality in Australia is at a 75-year high, which is a rather startling uh, claim. And, uh, and you could probably guess that uh, I'm going to quibble with it. Uh, so, so what I want to do today is uh, uh, give you a... Um, a brief rundown of what I think the uh, available evidence actually says is happening to income inequality. Uh, inequality is a, uh, uh, is a rather messy subject, and so it's, uh, um, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a result of a complex interactions between many things, and there are many different measures of inequality, and, and, uh, uh, and there are uh, different uh, conceptions of, of inequality as well. Uh, so I'm not going to drag you too much into the, the, the weeds, but I... I, I uh, I think uh, I will show you that um, that this uh, uh, this statement is probably uh, over-egging it a bit. Uh, the second thing I want to do is uh, just putting aside what is happening to inequality. Uh, what 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 might we contemplate doing about it uh, if if we if we think we uh, need to reduce it? And I think you know my position would be that inequality in Australia is, a, is probably a little bit uncomfortably high. Uh, it, it, it's still quite high by historical standards. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think there are things that, uh, you know, there's some low-hanging fruit that um, could be uh, um, uh, uh, addressed. 
Uh, so I'll run through that as well, um, and hopefully uh, uh, won't run out of time. So this is really the evidence base for Bill Shorten's statement. Uh, although it doesn't go back 75 years, it only goes back to, uh, to my birth year, which is not because that's when I think history started, but because um, the data prior to 1970 gets uh, quite uh, less comparable uh, with the later data. The data is pretty consistent from 1970 onwards. It comes from tax records data combined with national accounts data. Uh, and what it shows is the share of income that's subject to income tax that's going to the top 1% of people aged 15 and over. And you do in see, indeed see that uh, this measure of inequality, and it is a measure of inequality, uh, has been uh, steadily rising since the early 80s. Uh, and the latest data uh, give us, gives us a figure of 8.2% uh, of, of total income going to the top 1%. Um, but this is not traditionally what scholars have focused on when thinking about income inequality. Uh, it's, it's a pre-tax uh, income measure. It doesn't include all income components. Um, but more importantly, it's, it's, it's a personal income measure. So we, uh, we don't know who actually depends on that income. So it could, it's, it, it's not likely, but it's conceivable that all of these people in the top 1% uh, are actually the only income earners in their households and they live in large households. And in fact, when you adjust their household income for the number of people depending on it, they're not all that rich after all. Uh, I've already preempted myself. That's not entirely obviously the case. Um, and this is a valid measure of inequality. Um, but it's certainly not giving you a, a very complete picture. Uh, so focusing on this century, um, that we have uh, two main data sources that can tell us uh, about income inequality as more conventionally uh, measured. Uh, so the, uh, those two sources are the ABS Income and Housing Surveys uh, and uh, the HILDA Survey, which is a, a longitudinal uh, nationally representative uh, survey of Australian households started in 2001. Uh, now, each of these data sources has its problems, and this, I, I guess this is just a, 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 a way of making a point that having multiple independent sources of data is important to getting a clearer picture of uh, what's going on. Uh, the ABS would, data would normally be the go-to source, but uh, the ABS has had a proclivity to change its methods over time and, and making it difficult to ascertain what true trends in inequality are. I think it would be fair to say that they're getting better at measuring inequality, uh, so they're more accurate in the most recent years than they were in the earlier years. Uh, but but as, as I said, it, uh, those improvements uh, are, um, uh, are terrible for ascertaining trends. The HILDA survey has been a lot more stable over time, uh, but uh, um, being a, a longitudinal study, uh, things like uh, attrition and uh, uh, inability of new immigrants to get into the sample um, uh, cause it to have problems of declining representativeness, which are, which are issues that, um, you know, as one of the um, managers of the HILDA survey, we are cognizant of and try to address. For example, in 2011, we had a general top-up that allowed immigrants who'd arrived up between 2001 and 2011 to enter the sample. So they're not telling exactly the same story, um, but what they are consistently showing is that and this, is, I should also clarify, is, is a measure of over in, overall inequality called the Gini coefficient, probably familiar to most of you. The main thing you need to remember about it is it's zero if everyone has the same income, and it's one if one person has all, all the income. And, uh, and so a higher value means more inequality. And what, this, uh, what, what they both show since the GFC 
uh, is that, if anything, inequality has been declining in, in, as conventionally measured. So how do we reconcile these two data sources? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a few things going on. Obviously, they're measuring different things, uh, and, and, and that's, that's in, a, in a trite way uh, of explaining what's going on. Um, but but uh, essentially, uh, Australia's had very strong employment uh, uh, growth and, and the distribution of employment across households has been really important in offsetting the sort of trend we see uh, in this personal income share, which sort of corresponds a bit more closely to what's going on in uh, the, the, uh, the labour market for, for individuals. Uh, so when we're looking at household income overall, I mean, it is also true that the Gini coefficient is not particularly sensitive to what's going on at the top and the bottom of the distribution, um, but that actually is not the main driver of this uh, difference in, in trends. Uh, so that, that's, I think, a, a, a key point to note. Now, you still might say, well, inequality is... Um, it, it, it's still relatively high by modern historical standards for Australia, and I think there is, as I said earlier, um, a case for being uh, concerned about the level. Um, but a narrative that says that inequality is, is uh, ever-rising uh, is, is, is patently false from the available evidence that we have. Uh, in terms of what's going on at the bottom of the distribution, you might be worried about rising rates of, of income poverty. Again, neither data source really shows that that uh, is going on. This is a measure of uh, poverty where uh, it's a proportion of people with an income less than half the median income. Uh, um, it bounces around particularly in the ABS data, um, but it's uh, certainly not trending upwards. Uh, so um, uh, so, so uh, uh, that's another, I guess, important uh, part of the distribution to be aware of what's going on there. So what, what about wealth? Uh, so here again, um, there was some rise uh, in, in wealth inequality. We have less information on the distribution of wealth. The earliest estimates we have in modern Australian history are from 2002. Uh, in a, wealth is much more unequally distributed, as you can see there by the numbers on the, uh, on the, uh, the vertical axis there. They're, they're a lot bigger than uh, for income. Uh, and that, but that, to a large extent, reflects the fact that wealth tends to accumulate with age as you pay off the mortgage and increasingly as you accumulate superannuation. Uh, so uh, we did see some rise in the lead-up uh, to the GFC as in, in, I guess, a booming economy. Um, it's, you know, asset prices were growing strongly um, in that period and, and correspondingly we did see some rise in inequality. But since then, uh, there's really been nothing much going on in terms of wealth inequality. Now, un uh, underneath that, there is some uh, concern... I do have some concerns about a, a growing age gradient in wealth. So the differences in wealth by age have been uh, growing over time, and that's very much related to what's going on in the housing market. Um, um, but certainly, uh, from an overall perspective, uh, wealth inequality is not growing. Well, that's it, according to the academic who was uh, looking at his facts and figures. But anyway, we're going to finish this whole sequence off with a um, uh, not at that conference, but down outside Crown that's been rechristened uh, Frown, uh, <laughs> a world of unemployment. You might have caught up with the fact that, um, uh, Kim, that uh, 16 uh, maintenance workers are being sacked from frown and uh, because uh, they've outsourced 
the uh, maintenance contract to a company that, surprise, surprise, is mm. di- the director of this company is Kennett, oh, Jeff yes. Kennett, rising from the dead, uh, the capitalist zombie. And uh, he, uh, this is the man that gave Crown the uh, licence to gamble away on the Yarra like that. Anyway, uh, they've uh, said that the uh, people who are working there, the maintenance workers, uh, can't reapply for any of the jobs, even though the jobs are now being advertised at 50% of the wages that the the people were being paid. Mm. Anyway... There's uh, there's a fight on at the moment, and there was a rally down there at, on quite well attended rally on Tuesday, and Ben Benham uh, spoke. Uh, so we'll hear from her. The reason why it's a full circle is because the whole notion of inequality has entered the political landscape. It is going to be the one of the big questions in the election, um, and. Uh, the Treasurer uh, gave the Liberals' line in Parliament to try and yes. combat it. Now, Van by Badham, claiming it doesn't exist, essentially. By claiming it doesn't exist, essentially. Now, but Van Badham, in her in, uh, inimical style, uh, explains. So, listen up. Thanks, Luke. And it's fantastic to be here today wearing my Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance shirt. I'm the Vice President of the Union in Victoria and I would like to thank all of you who backed us in our fight against Fairfax for backing us in. Thank you. Because whether you're a media worker or whether you're a technician in the casino, whether you work in aged care or disability care, whether you're a public servant, whether you're a scientist, whether you're a fitter and turner, whether you're a miner, whether you work in furniture... Whether you work in a steelworks, it doesn't matter which profession you are in in this country anymore. You are vulnerable. You are vulnerable to the evil plague of idiotic American ideas that organisations like the Liberal Party and their mates in the IPA and all the other crazy right-wing think tanks have been importing for years. The rate of casualisation in this country is a disgrace and it affects everybody. It affects everybody from cleaners and retail workers to academics. There is no such thing as a permanent job anymore. Casualisation is now at 40%. 40%. And let's put this in context. In Germany, when the casualisation rate hit 20%, it was considered a national crisis. And government and industry and unions came together to restore the security of jobs to the German people. But we live in Australia. We live in Australia where Scott Morrison has the temerity to tell us that inequality is not a problem. And being terrified that your permanent job that you rely on to pay your mortgage and feed your family, your terror that that's going to be taken away from you because someone like Jeff Kennett can raise his lizard-like head over Victoria once again and find way to make money out of treating workers like garbage once again. So someone like Jamie Packer, who is worth four billion dollars and a crown organisation that makes over half a billion profit a year can grind workers into the dirt. Scott Morrison says we're just complaining. We're just making it up. Inequality is all in our heads. A member of the Liberal Party said in Parliament yesterday that inequality is just this fantasy and what it means, this was what was actually said was if you look over your neighbour's fence and see they've got a jet ski and you don't have one, well, you're not doing too badly. 
This is a member of parliament's actual analysis of what is going on in this country. A country where we are living in... I wouldn't wish the conditions of working in the media on anybody. I would not wish the conditions of freelancing on a dog. I wouldn't even wish it on Scott Morrison because I'm actually a better Christian than he is. But what I will wish is this, that what we've learnt in struggles like the magnificent campaign to restore jobs at Carlton United breweries fought by union members who are here today... What we've learnt from warehouses to university campuses to Fairfax across this country is that working people taking a stand in their trade unions makes a difference. It makes the most important difference that it is because we don't only win campaigns, we show other people how it's done. We show other people that equality is a thing that you don't just have to believe in, it's a thing that you can live It's a vision that we can all share of a better community, one with fairness and permanence and reasonable expectations about the education of our kids, about Medicare, about social stability, about good, reliable jobs that we can give our guts to and will pay us back what we are worth. So I say this to our friends in the Liberal Party. It's not about a jet ski, mate. It's about me and it's about you and you and you and all of us here and our brothers and sisters throughout the movement and every other person who we can talk to, who we can inspire to take action. Everyone who can stand up and say, enough is enough. You can screw your jet ski. We are changing the rules. I often feel the only thing standing between us falling off that precipice and actually fighting our way back up the top of the hill is the trade union movement. I really believe that. We have the numbers, we have the commitment, we have the heart, we have the will to really fight. And the only way we're going to win that fight is to grow the union movement. That was Jed Carney talking up union. Stay tuned to 3CR for more union news. 8.55 on your AM dial or 3cr.org.au. Well, that was fighting words, wasn't it, Kim? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as I said, uh, you were on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and that was outside the Crown. They're doing a campaign, it's called Frown, a World of Unemployment because, of course, these are step by step right across this country. This whole Turnbull Liberal Party, big end of town, uh, we can um, take... All the wages and conditions, EBAs, throw them out the uh, out of the window. We don't want mm. EBAs because that you know that's a reason for why the um, maintenance workers were given that they weren't allowed to uh, apply for these uh, jobs, even if they're at fifty percent less, is because mm. uh, they were on an EBA. Yeah, how does that work? Because you'd think that that would be. I mean, I I'm not up on these sorts of things legal things. But you'd think that it wouldn't be possible to ban people from well, applying for a job. Yeah, but you see, that's part of the whole... Uh, Isn't that discrimination of some kind? Well, no, it's because because they're on an EBA and uh, then they would be contravening some sort of law that, you see, they'd have to re-employ them on an EBA, 
you see, and they don't want the EBAs anymore. They want to take everybody back to what's called the modern award, which has got... And so in their case, that would go from, say, $76,000, which down to 38000 that's what they're actually asking really? for. That's what they want to That's do. That's outrageous. It's, it is. It's, it's an outrage. And this is going right across this country. This is what the... Because it's not much money because I thought, you know, the politicians have been saying these poor people on $150,000 a year, that's twice what these people are earning now and they want them to earn half well, that again. Well, given, given that uh, mortgages haven't gone down, uh, that... Uh, Food hasn't gone down. That uh, rents haven't gone down. That you know, none of the things have gone down. Electricity has skyrocketed. Gases. And the other thing is also, did you realise that with the uh, privatisation, that AGL has become this conglomerate that is owning more and more of the energy producing resources in this country? <laughs> anyway, mm. that's just an aside. <laughs> so if you were, yes. Anyway, that's by the by. Ah, so we've uh, we've been uh, trawling through the whole notion of inequality and how it's being played out over the last uh, week or so. There's been lots of other things going on, like uh, pilfering of uh, water resources. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, uh, well, you'd have to say, in inverted commas, a collusion with the New South Wales government because even though they've been had... Uh, evidence put forward, you know, the people who have been doing their diligent job, you know, collecting the information, uh, who work for the government, giving it to their uh, bosses and uh, nothing happening. Surprise, surprise, nothing happening. And this is all part of um, the cotton industry. And I was being told that uh, the person behind the cotton industry up in um, New South Wales is actually uh, Corrigan. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Another zombie capitalist. And they keep popping They just up. keep popping up. They well, never die. What I've learned from this is if you're going to be a criminal, folks, make sure you're a big one. You know, <laughs> don't think little. You know, don't steal a Freddo frog or something like that. You know, particularly not if you're Aboriginal. Make sure that you steal something big yeah. and then you'll get away with it. <laughs> well, perhaps that's the case. Um, not that we're implying anything. We're not implying anything. No. No. No, that was just a, a life observation. Mm. That was a life observation. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we might go to This Is The Week That Was, because you never know, Kevin might have experienced the week in the same way we did. A week Solidarity Bricky Team listener when, after years as a good, good union boss, Union boss, not a pejorative in his case, and isn't it heartening to know in a world suffering the anti-social disruption of evil, evil union bosses, there is the odd good, socially responsible union boss. Years as good union boss who never suffered the distraction of ever actually working in the industry, and then years fighting for sacrificing himself for the lazy, avaricious workers of this country by putting his bum on the plush seats, socialist party. Supremo and would-be big Supremo little Billy Shorten Ambition made an amazing discovery. Inequality. Not suggesting he's a slow learner, but little Billy reckons there may well be a bit of inequality in True Blue Aussie. Thank goodness for little Billy or we'd never have known. For a start, he explained, a glaring, glaring inequality is I am not equal with big Supremo Malcolm. But between now and the next election, 
inequality offers the promise of making me more than equal if you follow. What followed was a defence of inequality by its practitioners and their puppets, or sorry, no, no, parliamentarians, who understand that without inequality we could not enjoy the benefits of the trickle-down effect, those much-appreciated drops of yellow liquid, the benefits of the greatest little economic order of them all, which are, is, good for all of us. See, little Billy was exploiting the politics of envy, ignoring the obvious economic truth that without the filthy, filthy rich, the unclean, unclean poor would be even more penurious. The poor should thank the filthy rich every day for making their lives that little bit better. Big economic guru Scuttlebem Morlashson spoke for the exponents of the greatest little economic order. He is proposing an envy tax. Dear me, not an envy tax. While the Business Profits Council's Jennifer Waster not cut wages stated the obvious. The only way to help the poor, the only way to increase wages, is to make the filthy, filthy rich, filthy, filthy richer, and not place restrictions on their important role like expecting them to pay taxes, for instance. Which is sort of, with only slight embellishment, what she did say. And the Minister for Financial Services to the Greatest Little Economic Order, Kelly Odawaya, evil union so evil, said tightening tax dodging laws or, so, sorry, tax minimisation regulations on family and other trusts was an attack on philanthropy, charity and disabled people. Little Billy's short and ambition would have, would have, what have you got? What have you got against philanthropy, charity and disabled people? She was all compassion. Trusts are used for good, good, good purposes, not for tax evasion. And she's a junior economic type minister, so she wouldn't be wrong. Just a bit unfortunate, the same article quoted a Sydney professor of tax law estimating trust manipulation costs the public purse at least $2 billion a year it should receive, but he must be wrong. We'll back Kelly every time. Trusts are not a tax evasion tool. Well, they can't be. Half the front bench in Canberra uses them. And does anyone believe they'd be avoiding tax? Why, I know one minister's four-year-old and seven-year-old dear little children paid a whole $2.55 each in tax just last year, the same amount as both their parents. Little Billy, we asked, if your campaign to use the poor, this inequality you've discovered, succeeds and you become more equal than Malcolm, big supremo, what will you do about inequality? I don't follow, because obviously after I've eradicated the inequality which makes me unequal, there won't be any inequality. Ah yes, there's no doubt, he's the hope of the side. Aside to protect all of us on our side, the Minister for Concentration Camps Razor Wire and Sink the Boats Peter Duffer is thankfully holding firm against this treacherous claim by the UN of the US of the UN of the World Refugee Goody Goodies that they had the impression True Blue Aussie would allow no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people with family already in True Blue Aussie to come to True Blue Aussie. Imagine what disruption, what social incohesion that would cause, rewarding criminality, welcoming criminals whose heinous crimes include fleeing our trained killer liberation of where they should go back to.
the UN of basing its shocking imposition on our innate goodness on the flimsy evidence that when they asked Pete and Department of Concentration Camps Razor Wire and bureaucrats, could they present a list of no proper papers queue jumpers who have family in Trublawazi, Pete and the bureaucrats said, sure, sure. And the UN of took that to mean the criminals could be allowed in. Although we get the impression the UN of goody-goodies feel the criminals are already in. And I'm sure they must also feel Pete's imminent promotion is based purely on talent. And even more so must ask themselves what those not promoted must be like. The Modesty of the Week Award to Malcolm, after it was noted US of the UN of the US of the World, Big Supremo Donald Trump or the Paws, new communications guy, is yet another Goldman Sachs X. Alumni, they're calling them, hadn't realised Goldman Sachs was an educational institution educating the population to love the greatest little economic order. Yet another joining a long list of White House Goldman Sachs appointments. True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review headline, Goldman Sachs takes over White House. And the journal listed a long, long list of Goldman Sachs exes in influential political stroke financial positions across the world, including, yes, our very own Malcolm, a former Goldman Sachs investment banker. And the Modesty of the Week Award? I used to be a partner of Goldman Sachs, so there's a lot of smart people over the years who have worked for them. A lot, Malcolm. A lot. And I'm the lot of them. The journal also pointed out Donald had campaigned last year to drain the swamp of corporate special interests and lobbyists, even exploiting a photo of Goldman Sachs big supremo Lloyd Blank Checkspine shaking hands with Hillary, accusing Blank Checkspine of being part of the corrupt establishment. Bad, bad. Something that would shock Donald to his bootstraps, but I hope the journal wasn't implying you can't believe anything Donald says, that there is some sort of disconnect between election promises and post-election presidential decrees, non-core promises, because he, Donald, was correct. They are part of the corrupt establishment. And perhaps Donald believes he needs the corrupt to know all about corruption to drain the swamp. Now, as little Billy addresses inequality, I hope no one has the silly, misplaced idea that the burgeoning campaign over super funds by the aforementioned Kelly Oda Wire evil union so evil has anything to do with addressing the inequality which prevents the big four banks and the Goldman Sachs of this world getting their hands on all that lovely, lovely money. Why, she said, there's no connection. Shame, listener, shame for so prejudiced a thought. But her concern may well be that the badly managed funds, those with evil, evil union appointments on their boards, are, as we know, outperforming the efficiently managed funds, those run by the esteemed banks and the big, big financial institution boards. wonder if it's anything to do with the latter having a profit motive for themselves rather than the workers. Probably not. But Kelly knows it's important to get all that money into the hands of the efficiently underperforming to avoid people asking questions about the underperforming. What would happen if people lost faith in the banks, she asked? Good point. They might even call for a royal commission. 
hang on, there's, there's some sort of commotion down in Malcolm's office. A big Supremo, big Supremo. There's another senator caught up in this dual citizenship business. Great, great. The way it's going, the Greens will have no one left. Serves them right. Talk about careless. There's no excuse. Ignorance is no defence. They have to resign. Great, great. Uh, no, Big Supremo, it's one of ours, one of your hayseed and sheepshit party ministers, uh, Matt Canavan of Clean Coal. Oh, oh, uh, obviously an innocent mistake. We, we must challenge this in the High Court. Ignorance is a, an obvious defence. As it turned out, Matt, Matt fell back on the Shane Warne defence. Me mum made me do it. It's all her fault. And he might have a case, because Matt said he had no idea, and we've known for ages he has no idea. But what a tragedy if the publicly funded private Adani, the environment, lifting India's poor out of poverty private coal mine, and clean coal itself, lost one of their most forceful proponents. Perhaps his mum's a closet socialist. Even if those who know about these things say it would have been impossible for him not to know. And, well, maybe it was explained to him, but the matter was so complicated he still didn't know, just couldn't understand. That's very possible. Finally, speaking of mothers, following yet another, oh, sorry, police murder, sorry, killing in Sydney Wednesday, the big brass said there would be an independent inquiry. We've appointed the, you know, like, officers' mothers to conduct the, like, you know, inquiry, and, and our information is, you know, like, they've always known how to teach them a, a, like, you know, lesson, which certainly sounds much more independent than the police inquiries we're used to. And after all, the victim was brandishing a pair of scissors, so what choice would the coppers have, other than using a bit of common sense? But then we are talking about, yeah, yeah, good morning. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You are. Hmm. And on the line, we've got uh, Sue Karma. How are you, Sue? How are you? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Now, (laughs) the reason why we've got you up early, Sue, is because you're one of the curators of an exhibition at Heidi called Constructivism and Australian Art. And uh, I went off to see uh, a uh, a sister program on at the Nova, which was uh, Battleship Potemkin and A Man with a Camera, which I have to say I hugely enjoyed on the big screen. And uh, then I learned about this exhibition at Heidi. Could you explain to our listeners why constructivism, what constructivism is and why it was an important Mm. element to modern history? Yes, sure. Um, Well, we we called the exhibition, it's it's Call of the Avant-Garde, Constructivism and Australian Art, and it looks at the influence of this really pivotal modernist art movement which began in um, Russia at the time of the Russian Revolution. Um, and, of course, we're celebrating the 100th year centenary of that. Um, so it was a quite an extraordinary um, moment within the history of art and, and social history, really, that um, a very avant-garde artists who were working with um, abstract geometric shapes um, and who um, who v- 
visually speaking, um, had rejected ideas of um, figuration and narrative um, and started to work with materials that were industrial and representative of the new modern world, were closely allied to the the government of the day. The, the, the Russian artists were very much on the side of the communist revolution, and they felt that the art they were making was for this brand new utopian, and that word is often used in relation to constructivism, movement, um, where art would become something that was accessible to everyone. It would have a very strong integration with everyday life, um, that everything in art that was unnecessary and bourgeois or decorative would be stripped away and art would become a much more functional and integrated uh, element within life. Um, and so they actually were, it was, it, it initiated in, in communism, um, which is a hard thing for us to sort of appreciate now um, because of, you know, the well-documented failings of that philosophy. But um, the uh, it was a very idealistic period. But, but what it did was it, it foregrounded a number of important ideas. The, the first one was that of, well, of, of, of abstraction that the world that the the artwork didn't depict the world it was more a part of the world um, and uh, the idea of uh, arts integration with everyday life and at a certain moment within the the Russian movement they started to move away from painting and sculpture into making um, utilitarian objects so we, in our exhibition, um, which is of contemporary, principally of contemporary Australian artists, so it goes back to the 1930s in Australia, have included artists who are working in this tradition. And uh, it, it does include um, painting, sculpture, you know, a range of um, mediums. But also we have um, works that look at uh, the role of um, art within theatre, within... Um, everyday life so we have uh, beautiful uh, printed scarves we've got um, certain items of uh, furniture and garments all made by visual artists uh, that that speaks to that idea of arts integration with the with the everyday it's quite fascinating so, it's quite fascinating mm. Sue, because uh, despite uh, the sense that uh, well you you say the weaknesses of that of communist theory but the uh, thing that's interesting is that a whole range of the elements that uh, those artists put forward into the world have actually shaped modern they consciousness. Have. They have. They have. Um, the constructivists um, influenced enormously a modern design because they moved from painting and sculpture. They, they radically revised what a painting or what a sculpture could be. Um, and then they also moved, eventually they felt that even those forms, painting and sculpture, were, um, you know, too tied to bourgeois ideas of art and they moved out further into society um, with, uh, and graphic design is one of the areas they moved into in their posters and um, books and 
printed material have really laid the foundations for modern graphic design, which is still very present with us today. So it was a very far-reaching movement. It influenced architecture. Um, it influenced fashion, uh, ideas of, um, of artists working uh, into production. So that, I mean, one of, for example, at the other extreme, in a, in a certain kind of way, we have a beautiful coat in the exhibition um, that is designed by... Um, well, the coat's not designed by Esther Stewart, a, a, a Melbourne artist, but the, the fabric is based on um, the designs in her paintings. And, um, and so the, the women artists uh, of the Russian movement who were very, very important, and that was one of the reasons why it was such an inspiring period, because the women worked... Um, you know, well before, perhaps in the West, the um, women were considered equal to the men. They certainly were within this movement. And one of the things that Vavara Stepanova and Luba Popova uh, became very famous for were, were their textile designs um, for the uh, state printing factory, cotton textile printing factory in Moscow. And so this, this their, their, their geometric designs on, on uh, fabrics that were meant to kind of capture the spirit of the industrial modern age and also the, the equality that this, these fabrics could be available to people across all walks of life, um, you know, was really very inspirational even today for the, for the, you know, the fashion industry, for example. So it was an extremely far-reaching movement. I find that uh, issue of objects used in everyday life really quite interesting or using art objects in everyday life because I think that in general people in society are quite alienated from the things that they themselves create and art is often seen as something that you put in a cabinet. So was their philosophy really to take the uh, art into the world? Absolutely. I mean, the philosophy of, for them, constructivism was life. Um, and if you t take a couple, couple like uh, Rodchenko, Alexander Rodchenko and Vavara Stepanova, who were artistic as well as life partners, and they kind of modelled this idea of the, um, of the constructivist life, you know, that everything they wore... <coughs> um, the way they lived their lives was to do with the, the new, the new every day. Um, they had the concept, uh, there was the communist concept of the new every day, um, the novi bite. Um, and uh, it, it meant that um, everyday life was renewed through art and through, um, through the design of, of objects that would, um, instill the values of, of, of this new way of living. So it was a very sort of holistic approach. Um, how did it, how uh, did, Sue, how did it influence Australian <laughs> society? I mean, obviously, uh, your exhibition is actually about mm, the... It is. Yeah, uh, uh, how it appeared in Australia, artists here, yeah, and how it yeah. affected them. Yeah, well, um, it, so it was one of the main modernist movements 
to come to Australia. And our, our exhibition looks at work back to the 1930s and 40s, where as as um, as constructivism moved out of Russia, um, because inevitably these modernist movements they spread throughout the world, and um, as all ideas do, and then they transform and translate in in various contexts. And it became far less associated with communist ideology and more to do with a, um, a belief in ab- abstraction as a uh, a new modern. Um, revolutionary art form and so we've looked at artists from the 30s and 40s who painters and sculptors who are exploring these sorts of ideas and they still have whilst their works are uh, pure form really they still had a a kind of um, social utopianism they believed that their work was um, you know part of the new dawning of the you know the modern age um, or the remaking and, of the world. Yeah, yes. Although, you know, in their works, it is principally a... Um, if you think of uh, artists like um, Ralph Bolson um, or Grace Crowley, they're, they're principally exploring um, what what is a painting. And so it... But it, at the same time, um, the, you know, they, they've got the geometric shapes, the beautiful colours... But at the same time, it comes out of uh, out of a philosophy that um, they're they're stripping away the bourgeois, the unnecessary, and they're making an art that is um, um, modern and they believed accessible. Um, and so then then we look from from the 30s and 40s with the paintings, painters and sculptors. We look right up in each of the decades. Um, at the influences of um, of the movement, and whereas uh, the 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 artists of the 30s and 40s were really influenced by British constructivism, which was like a um, offshoot of the movement, um, which occurred you know all around the world. Um, in in more contemporary times, the the Australian artists are looking back to the original Russian movement and. They're just very inspired by the um, incredibly experimental character of the work um, and um, also this uh, idea that it works across um, a range of mediums. I mean, if you if you take an artist like Rose Nolan, for example, she's, she's from... She is continuing... Um, very vigorously to practice today, but she discovered constructivism and um, suprematist movement, which was the other arm of the Russian avant-garde in the early 80s. <clears throat> and she, as an art student, and she 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 actually went to Russia and um, to explore it further in uh, twice in the 1980s. And you kind of need to understand that that it was all a bit of a secret, the whole history of the Russian avant-garde was somewhat um, well, then, hidden uh, behind course, an iron curtain. Yeah, because there um, was uh, Stalin, of course. And, that's uh, right, yes, because yeah. the movement was closed down under uh, under Stalin, viciously closed down, and in fact never spoken of. And, uh, you know, um, in, in Russia it was virtually extinguished. So it wasn't until later that, um, in a way, the West rediscovered um, 
Russian constructivism and information started to emerge, um, particularly, uh, a, you know, a, a book was written in the 1960s and then after 1990 when the archive opened, there was more information. And, I mean, and now, of course, um, you know, um, artists like um, Rodchenko and Tatlin and, and Malevich, they're, they're, they're heroes. They're heroes. They're heroes. They so, are heroes. And they were yes. heroes. Yes. Um, so, we have to finish, Sue, but um, tell yes. me, tell us, yes. I mean, because we could talk about this for forever, uh, but people should go out to your exhibition. Can you give yes. them the details? Yeah, look, it's uh, um, at Heidi, a Museum of Modern Art. It's on until October, but and it goes across uh, several of our galleries, and it's a very diverse contemporary show that has painting, sculpture, um, fabric design, um, theatre, um, costume, uh, but, you know, it's a principally a, sh- a show of, of contemporary work that, you know, picks up on these, these themes and really um, celebrates and explores them um, in a whole range of ways. So come out to Heidi at, um, mm. you know, we're at Templestowe Road, Bulleen, and... Uh, People could go um, today if they wanted to? Yes, yes, we're open every day apart from Monday, so... Um, we um, yeah, we invite you to come out and see the exhibition. People see we've been getting a great response actually. Um, I think that people have found it you know visually very enticing. So I hope that um, people do come and explore this fascinating movement. That yeah. you know, some we just feel we've scratched the surface. There's so so much of interest. That's oh, exciting. <laughs> Thank you, Sue. The gardens are nice too. Hi, my name is Lex Wharton and I listen to 3CR and I hope you do too. I hope that you could support 3CR in its radiothon because 3CR supports the fight for communities and support in all areas of struggles. So please listen to 3CR. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and that's just a reminder that uh, thank you very much for your support, Radiothon support for Solidarity Breakfast. There are a few people who haven't honoured their pledges so this is just a little sweet reminder. Uh, And uh, we're going to go out now with... uh, uh, oh, well, you know, we, we uh, told you, we're supposed to have back announced, we did go through some stuff about the uh, political ramifications of, uh, that came out of the Economic and Social Outlook Conference uh, with uh, inequality. Mm-hmm. We but, had an incoherent speech from Turnbull. Yeah, that's right. We heard from Shorten. Uh, we uh, heard from an academic and we heard from Van uh, Badham, who was outside Crown uh, supporting workers who had been sacked by Crown. And uh, the and she spoke directly towards inequality perfectly. Uh, so did uh, Kevin. Kevin uh, Healy mm. with this. This is the week it was. You'd think we planned all this. Uh, we then went to Heidi and talked to Sue Kaha, who uh, who told us about the constructivist and Australian art exhibition, which sounds fantastic. And uh, the we're going to go out with a piece that. Uh, was um, an impassioned speech last night, Uh, uh, Justice for Elijah. Elijah was killed uh, by a a car in Kalgoorlie. A man was chasing him. This man was... uh, His uh, charges were downgraded to uh, 
dangerous driving from manslaughter. Uh, this is not good enough according to the community and uh, there were many people out in the street in Melbourne who also agreed. Uh, so we're going to go out with this and then we'll leave with a song from... Uh, there was a sad loss this week of uh, Dr K- uh, y- Yunapingu. Uh, we'll go out with uh, a piece from him. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. My name is Serena Clanton. I'm a Wonga for Yamiji and Noongar Gidja woman. This is my brother, Carmen McBroom. Our family are from Kalgoorlie. This is really, really hard because our people, our children, our youth are dying. They are being slaughtered and they are being supported by the judicial system. There is no justice for our youth. This ruling has made it okay to murder Aboriginal children. This ruling shows that our black children don't matter. How many more deaths do we have to endure in our community when they start to matter? We are a long way from home and we thank you for being in solidarity with our mob in Western Australia. From Wongafi Yamaji country in Kalgoorlie, thank you for being here. It means the world that Indigenous and non-Indigenous people are here standing together in unity and saying this is not okay. We do not accept this ruling. Our black children, our black deaths, murders, we will not sanction murders. Our black children matter. chose to put the law into his own hands. The court systems in its own ruling, its own casing, had only this case and perspective to make the criminal justice system make it okay that it went from manslaughter to driving recklessly causing death. No murder. Can you imagine an Indigenous person doing that to a white child? Do you think they'd get away with reckless endangerment, reckless driving, causing death? They'd have the whole book thrown at him. There is no justice for our people. When do we get justice? When do we have these courts and judicial systems, the Parliament House, the government, saying that our people's lives are human lives and that they are equal to our white counterparts? When? There is no accountability for Donald We hear more about his fear, him having to leave Kalgoorlie, 
what his oppression and hurt has been, then the oppression and hurt and death of our family members, of our community, of the pain and suffering by his family. What this death represents is that his death represents hundreds and thousands of our Aboriginal youth that go unnamed, that remain silent in our justice system, that get ignored by our mainstream media. Today, the police are hyper-vigilant, hyper-militarised. I don't understand why. This is a peaceful protest. And what our presence here today says, this is not okay. We stand in solidarity with Elijah. We stand in solidarity with our Wangatha Yamaji family in Kalgoorlie. We stand in solidarity with our Indigenous brothers and sisters who are dying in the criminal justice system. We stand in solidarity with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters who are continued to be ignored and denied justice within the court systems and their rulings. How many more deaths must we endure? How much more grief must we endure? How many more mother's tears must we endure? Because I know for a fact, had this been a non-Indigenous child, we would never hear the end of it. Why are we in the media so suddenly concerned more about the death of an innocent white woman than the death of an innocent black child? He was innocent too. The amount of criminalization that I'm hearing in our community saying that he deserved it and he was a thief. Let me, let me challenge those facts for you. At no point in time in the ruling was it ever proven that he stole the bike. Don't believe what the media want to tell you, how they want to indoctrinate your thinking into thinking that black is criminal. The child was innocent. He was 14 years old. They love to dredge up the past of our black youth, saying that his death was justified, that the murder and killing of him was justified, that Mark couldn't move past the bike fast enough, so it was justified. The spinal breaking, the back of his spinal cord says otherwise. The brutal murder over his body with it with a four-wheel drive says otherwise. What we say here today with, our, with my beautiful brother and with all of you brothers and sisters is that we stand in solidarity and we stand with peace, but we also stand in resilience and we demand justice. We demand an appeal of the court decision, of the court ruling, 
and that enough is enough. No more black blood, no more blood needs to be spilt for us to be proven or to show that we are human and that we are equal and that we deserve justice and that our deaths and our lives matter. Our deaths, our lives matter. Elijah's lives matter. Our children's lives matter. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.